evening. The next lecture in this series is on Thursday, March 10. The speaker is Professor Alvin Kernan, who is Avalon Professor of Humanities at Princeton, who will be talking about literary patronage and the emergence of the profession of authorship in the days of Samuel Johnson. And there are many other lectures this month, which I'm sick to death of, and if you see the posters ranging outside the press room after the lectures, I hope you will, you'll see why. But we start the month fresh, or end the month fresh, I should say, with uh, Roderick Cave, who has lectured in New York many times before, sometimes under our auspices, sometimes under those of the New York chapter of the American Printing History Association. I can now demonstrate that the second edition of his book exists in at least one copy in this country. And it's a great pleasure to hear someone as distinguished as he talk about a subject which he commands the literature as thoroughly as he does, Mr. Roderick Cave on Rare Books Librarianship. Well, thank you very much, Terry. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to be back in New York uh, wearing a different hat from the, the hat I've usually worn in the past where I've been talking about private presses or something of that sort. But when Terry and I were talking uh, sometime earlier about my coming to New York and the, the possibility of lectures, I suggested various topics connected with printing in New Zealand and uh, that sort of thing. He said, no way. Uh, you know, he might be interested, but he doubted if anybody else would. And um, the topic for tonight's talk came as a result of these discussions. But, uh, if any of you wish to leave now, because, because there will be mentions of New Zealand and what happens in New Zealand libraries in the end of it, this is your opportunity and I won't hold it against you. The, the title that uh, Terry and I agreed, Recent Developments in Rare Book Librarianship, is really something of a misnomer. I think it should instead um, be something on the lines of reflections on revising my small textbook with a number of comments on uh, rare book librarianship as it's practiced in one New Zealand library, the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington, which is the nearest thing we have to a, a true research library with rare books in the country. And when I was uh, preparing the first edition of my book, or I should, I suppose, say the, the lecture notes from which it was ultimately derived ten years ago, the fact was that rare book librarianship as such uh, received no attention at all in British library education uh, and therefore as a natural consequence very little in it, library education in the Commonwealth except perhaps Canada which would follow the American pattern. Even if the concept of rare book librarianship as such was accepted there was no attempt made to provide any sort of education, any training in the special services, special attitudes necessary in this kind of work. And I therefore thought it necessary to, in the book to emphasize the differences between rare books and work with rare books and 
the routines of library work that you'd find in most other types of library, most other types of service. And perhaps, therefore, I concentrated rather too much on the custodial conservation end of work with rare books. Rather, I suppose, as one might say, the archivist does. As a frequent user of archives, records, offices, and so forth, I've noticed, as I'm sure the rest of you will have done as well, something of a contrast between the type of service, at any rate in British record offices, and the type of service one gets in libraries. Service, in fact, is not a very good word to use to describe the reception that one receives in many archive repositories in Britain. Convenience for readers, usefulness to readers, certainly not. All the emphasis in the past, for excellent reasons, which I respect, has been on the conservation, the custodianship of the material. Now, perhaps because I'd made this strong emphasis in the first edition of my book, I think it's been particularly good to have another point of view made fairly recently by John Feather. Some of you will have seen his article in the January 1972 issue of the Journal of Librarianship, uh, entitled The Rare Book Librarian and Bibliographical Scholarship. <clears throat> and in this, uh, Feather makes a very good point, I think, that the growth of rare book collections in British libraries is due to accidents of history, uh, that they came out, came into existence first as the, the cabinets of curiosities, which would be segregated from the main stock uh, because of the beauty of their printing, of their binding, or something the institutional library, like the private library, would select the treasures as objects of virtue, if you like. Secondly, as another influence in the rare book collections in Britain, you had the effect of those studying incunabula in the 19th century. First, perhaps Bradshaw at Cambridge, later on Proctor at the British Museum. And finally, the tie-up which came between the new developing discipline of bibliography and of textual criticism, even literary, criti literary editing, about which uh, Feather is perhaps a little ruder than he should be. Nevertheless, I think the point he makes that this has distorted the pattern of rare book librarianship is a valid one. It has persuaded many of those who work in such collections to concentrate only on the needs of those who work working in these particular fields. Now, the incunabulist, of course, was concerned primarily with the book as physical object, not with the subject matter of its text, but where it was printed, who'd printed it, in what types, and so forth. These were the things that concerned them. And the libraries developed the services rather on the same sort of lines, so that you could find for the, the British Museum a splendid catalogue arranged by proctor order, but you couldn't find any sort of subject guide to the 15th century books in that library. 
But most users, of course, are concerned with the book as a vehicle for text. They are concerned not with the book, but with the work that the book embraces. And there were those, even at the time that the uh, Bibliographical Society was getting underway, who put this point with some considerable irritation. James Duff Brown, who was one of the, the foremost public librarians in England, uh, no friend of the Dewey Decimal Classification, I may say, which may persuade you to like him more or less, I don't know, but the, the man who introduced open access to public libraries in Britain and so forth, described modern bibliography as exactly the same old egotistical hobby which it was a hundred years ago when it became a fad for rich collectors and the dry-as-dust devotees of 15th century Latinity. Now, uh, this was in a, a fighting article, as you'll have gathered, in an issue of the library in 1903, um, Brown's arguments were fairly well demolished in a reply by A.W. Pollard but I think although I'd accept the validity of Pollard's arguments Brown did have a point of view to express that of the man who is approaching the content of rare book collections in the way that most people approach libraries in general. He was approaching it from the point of view of the man concerned with the work rather than the book. So Feather's emphasis in his recent article on the need to recognize that collections of rare books are for use in exactly the same way that other collections of books are for use and that most users will not care whether a book is regarded as rare or not but will be approaching it from that simple point of view is one well worth making and there are also of course important changing patterns of use I don't know whether user studies are as fashionable in uh, American librarianship as they are in British. Uh, it seems one can't pick up a library journal of any sort in Britain without finding a user study of one kind or another. Indeed, we have a whole center for research in user studies attached to Sheffield University and funded at considerable expense by the British Library Research and Development Division. In many cases, naturally, the direction of library funds will, quite properly, be to those whose services demonstrably meet user needs. So the studies of user needs will be extremely significant in ensuring whether or not rare book collections, as opposed to other aspects of a library's total functions, receive monetary support or not. How far have rare book librarians, in fact, studied user needs? It's a rhetorical question to which the answer must be, I think, not very much. Uh, we all, perhaps, have a gut feeling about what our users require from us, what we should be doing to give them better service, and so forth. But that isn't, it seems to me, 
anything like good enough today. Gut feelings are fine, but directors of library services and our masters at higher levels still require quantified information. And one needs, I think, to do a certain amount of work in this way. Of the, the studies there have been, some have been very useful in general terms. For example, some of the points made in Charles Osborne's um, Academic Research and Library Resources, Changing Patterns in America, which was published in 1979, or a rather different kind, Howard Winger's article, Scholarly Use of Renaissance Printed Books, which was in a 1977 issue of Library Trends. These are fine, but they are still impressionistic. Um, there's been occasional individual study of the way in which scholars who work habitually or frequently with rare books will, in fact, use the literature. Um, one of the things I did when I started the, the library school at the Victoria University of Wellington a few years ago was to make my students, very unwillingly I may say, uh, go in for a number of citation studies in different fields. And um, one such study that we did was on bibliographical journals. The reason for this being uh, twofold, I suppose. One, that it was a field which nobody had investigated previously, as far as we could gather. Uh, second, that there was a considerable overlap between the group uh, taking this particular course and those who were doing the history of the book course. Uh, which we offered as another option. This was a way of ensuring that they turned over the pages of the library, papers of the Bibliographical Society of America, and the other things that they ought to be reading in any case. And um, the, the results of this study were subsequently uh, published in the, the Journal of Librarianship. And there have been other similar studies that we've undertaken or have been undertaken by other groups. There was one ten years earlier on historians' use of the literature and the way in which they cited and so on and so forth. Now, the results of these studies are not news to anybody who's been working in rare book collections, uh, but they do point out a very considerable difference in the pattern of referencing, the pattern of citation, uh, from that which you will find in the social sciences and particularly in the physical sciences from which most such work has come in the past. Quite a number of libraries I know use such studies. They will use the results of the uh, citation analyses produced by Garfield and the Institute of Scientific Information to decide whether or not to continue particular serial subscriptions where they are in a, a state of having to cut subscriptions. That's fine, perhaps, in the physical sciences where perhaps 90% of citations will be to periodical articles. We found that in our field it was as low as 20%, and the pattern of citation was quite different too. One didn't find in the articles in bibliographical journals, for example, that there was any real difference between the frequency of citation of 
15th or 16th or 17th or 18th or 19th century books than those of the present century. Naturally, they're being cited for quite different reasons and in a different way from the way in which one cites an article published last year or somebody's conference paper of two years ago and so forth. But that, I think, does not matter. It was useful as an exercise simply, perhaps, to demonstrate that such crude attempts at quantitative analysis are not valuable in the field of the humanities, particularly the historical studies of all kinds. <clears throat> they were not things which could be used in the ways beloved by library managers. More work, it seems to me, is needed so that we can produce the quantitative data and, with luck, the qualitative data that library managers demand so that we can show how historians and others really use the materials in our collections and can demonstrate through the statistics so gathered the need for continuing to develop our collections. Otherwise, I fear they will be regarded as they are quite often regarded still merely as the, the cabinets of curiosities that I mentioned a few moments ago. Now, I don't want myself to get into the question of whether historians, uh, a Christopher Hill, let's say, uses his sources with the, the punctilio we expect from those working in English literature. Um, I merely want to merely mention the point to reinforce the suggestion that more people from more and more disciplines, any discipline with a historical slant to it, in fact, are now using the books in rare book libraries in a way that certainly wasn't true in Britain at any rate uh, 20 years ago. And we have to provide these users with effective tools to provide a key to the content of our collections. The interested bibliographers, people like ourselves perhaps, and the interests of many perhaps the majority of users are not necessarily identical. They may be poles apart. And it seems to me that we should not force on the users of our catalogues and other tools a need for the users to understand details of description which are going to be totally irrelevant or misleading to their own purpose. I should perhaps hear... Uh, refer to one very marked development since the first edition of my book, namely the impact of machine-readable cataloguing on the rare book world. And the obvious requirement that there is for us to take advantage of automation for the cataloguing of collections of rare books. Uh, I may, might say almost the need to ensure that materials we care for, and I hope we care about, are going to be included in normal databases so that normal users 
can exploit rare books just as they exploit non-rare materials. Here I'm returning to the, the sort of point that John Feather was making. Of course, there are problems, and it is difficult to reconcile our feelings about the needs of traditional users of rare book collections with those of some of the newer ones. But the, for example, the Independent Research Library Association's attempts to secure suitable modifications of the MARC format, uh, the publication of the 18th century short title catalogue rules, and later of the International Standard Bibliographical Description, Antiquarian, are very important in this way. Of course, both ESTC and ISBDA are compromises. Both gloss over much or confuse much that the bibliographer would wish to have. But nevertheless, I think these modified codes do present something of an advance and certainly uh, a means of ensuring that other librarians, as well as rare book librarians, understand something of the problems that there are with the type of material we have and the type of access point that our users will demand. <clears throat> Perhaps I'm talking of ESTC, and I don't want to say much on this because I'm sure you will have heard a great deal about it before. Uh, it seems to me that regardless of the ESTC rules and the existence now of the, the British Library's part of ESTC as a database available through Blaze, the spin-off that there has been through the ESTC activity, and particularly uh, for those of us, like myself, very remote from bibliographical centres, through the publication of its newsletter Factotum, has been of very great importance indeed. And I know when I wear one of my other hats and talk about printing history in Jamaica, uh, there's any amount of work that I would have been totally unable to do had it not been for the existence of ESTC, works that I would never have discovered had I not been able to get access via the uh, imprint approach, which is excellent in many American research libraries and appallingly weak in most British and European ones. Uh, if I walked into the Bodleian Library and said, what have you got printed in Port of Spain or Kingston, Jamaica, uh, they'd look at me very strangely indeed. I certainly wouldn't get a, a useful answer. And I think in this sort of way, um, the ESTC approach is enabling British libraries and libraries in some Commonwealth countries like Australia and New Zealand to catch up with some of the services that have been developed in United States research libraries through traditional manual methods. <coughs> now, let me come on uh, fairly quickly to the, the subject approach to the information. If a subject approach is desirable, as I've suggested, how does one set about it? What can one do? Of course, there have been attempts at this. The work done by Peter Wallace 
and his team in Newcastle on the project for historical biobibliography, uh, producing their 18th century British books, a subject catalogue, is significant in this field. I imagine most of you will have come across this work already. Um, I'd be interested afterwards, when we're talking informally, to, to know your opinions of it as users of the work. Uh, quite obviously, uh, an attempt to catalogue by title, using the Dewey Decimal Classification, from entries extracted from the British Museum's general catalogue, is in uh, methodology a seriously flawed method. Uh, I think in many ways the attempt of the PHIBB um, people to go it alone independently of ESTC with their own version, the conflation of the British Library's catalogue with the 18th century entries from uh, the Bodleian and Cambridge University Library. And for the second separate part, this subject approach is of questionable value. Nevertheless, it's a brave attempt, not only at providing subject access to a field which was notoriously weak in any subject approach before, but also in doing so by taking full advantage of modern automated methods. That the work is, in my opinion, an almost unmitigated disaster uh, does not I think, floor the concept. I'd be very interested afterwards, as I say, to discover from you how many of you have used this, this brave attempt to arrange 18th century materials by the Dewey Decimal Classification. <coughs> but it is, as I've said, really the first attempt since the 1820s, since Robert Watt's Bibliotheca Britannica was published, to provide any sort of subject access. Uh, John Feather, in his article, writes of the immense value of this work. I've indicated that I don't agree from my own small sampling of it. I'll be very interested to know whether you do as users of such tools. My own feeling is that we must obviously improve our subject coverage, our subject approach to the older materials in our rare book collections, but that by applying 20th century or 19th century ideas of classification to earlier material, we'll be producing something which is of extremely limited value, something which we must do with great care indeed. What we need to do, I think, what users have to do is to try to understand the past in its own terms and that uh, a 19th or 20th century classification imposed on the earlier material really does not allow us to understand it in its own terms that the modern approach will be used frequently by readers as a substitute for using guides which are appropriate for the period. If one's looking at, what, 17th century theology, let's say, 
look at the, the Dewey schedules are a most inappropriate way of dividing material. Certainly one can assign Dewey numbers to many of the pamphlets, although one has to read a great deal more of this disagreeable literature than I care to do myself uh, in order to do so. But having done so, one has not, I think, increased one's understanding of the literature and the way that the people who wrote it were thinking about it. Uh, now, maybe as librarians, this should not be our concern. This should simply be the concern of the users of the libraries, those who are going to consult the material, but uh, a flawed classified arrangement will not help them very much. Still, I am perhaps getting off at a little of a tangent or uh, riding one of my hobby horses, and although it's a matter which needs more discussion, I should return to a number of other developments. <coughs> First of all, the major change, as far as Britain's concerned, at any rate, I think, uh, will come in the field of conservation. The British Library, the Bodleian, other libraries now have their own conservation offices. And the whole subject of ensuring the materials we've inherited from the past will be preserved for use in the future is receiving much more serious, much more sensible attention than it ever has done in the past. There is, of course, uh, a paradox about this. The content of rare book collections in Britain typically will be material printed before 1801, plus bits and pieces of uh, a later period, modern fine printing, Victorian novelists in three-volume form, or whatever else it might be. In other words, the material which receives first attention from the conservation officers is the material which is least likely to decay in the library. It's going to be the 19th and the 20th century material which is going to give them the real professional headaches. Uh, still, there is an advance in this way, and more work is being attempted now, uh, some sort of attempt at a coordinated national plan for conservation uh, through Dr. Ratcliffe, the uh, university librarian at Cambridge, although how successful that program will be, um, I think it's much too early to say. But it would be inappropriate for me to speak at Columbia University on matters of conservation. Columbia is the place, above all others, which has taken conservation seriously. Um, let me just pass on very briefly with the, the general the comment that there's now general recognition that I think, at any rate, a general recognition that a total collection policy is needed as a part of basic library management. Conservation is not something that you tack on to the end of rare books. Matter of conservation is something which is integral to the management of libraries in general. And fortunately, more and more in Britain, this seems to be accepted today. Second change since the first edition of my book, uh, prices, values of books, of course, have gone way through the roof. 
uh, the older system by which those attempting to buy material for rare book collections could turn back to book auction records and so forth to estimate what a book would fetch sold at Sotheby's or Parkinet or whatever has largely broken down. There are newer tools. Living where I do, I've no idea whether the, the Bookline Utopia database is proving really useful in enabling librarians to keep up to date and when, if they're lucky enough to have any money to buy new books at all, uh, when things come up for auction, whether they are able to bid in realistic terms or not. But, once more, there is an advance in this field, I think. Perhaps one of the benefits of the recession will have been to force a number of librarians to reevaluate their collection profiles, their selection policies, rather more rigorously than they'd done in the past, and only to concentrate on the fields in which they had the hope of achieving some sort of excellence. Purchases, of course, have become infinitely more difficult than they were in the boom years of 10, 15 years ago. I was rather pleased, in fact, when I was on leave in Britain a couple of months ago to discover something of a breakthrough in one library where I hadn't expected it. This was Birmingham City Library, which one thinks of as a perfectly normal public library system in a large city, one which has, in fact, a rather fine uh, series of research collections coming under the reference division with its Shakespeare Library, early children's books, modern fine printing, and so forth, as well, obviously, as its, its basic uh, Birminghamiana. One of the great problems in Britain at the moment is that we have a government which is, as you'll know, concerned to cut down spending in the public sector. So book votes have been declining very rapidly indeed. On the other hand, the government is anxious to increase capital expenditure as a way of getting out of the uh, recession. At Birmingham, they've managed to persuade their masters that purchases of books for the special collections, the books that are going to be there for 50, 100, 200 years, should be regarded as capital in the way that you'd regard a new building or large new equipment, something of that sort. And they've bought it only to the extent of £50,000 for the first year, but even so, £50,000 extra uh, when you hadn't expected it in the current economic climate is extremely cheering and I think as this has come in Birmingham it's likely that in other libraries too the fact that the material of rare book collections should be regarded as capital and not as part of recurrent expenditure like journal subscriptions or novels that will be discarded in three years and so forth I was rather cheered by that matter of course, we have other problems in the United uh, in New Zealand and in the United Kingdom, which you don't have in the United States. Gifts to libraries are not 
uh, tax deductible in the way that they've been here and in which, from which libraries have obviously benefited. A few libraries in Britain have benefited from the fact that um, in some instances death duties can be taken in the form of art objects which can include valuable books to named libraries but that isn't really I think going to advance libraries to any significant extent one area in which there has alas been considerable development is theft the number of horror stories one hears of this library being ripped off or that going from the other is not decreasing by any means and despite all the new security procedures that one sees in many libraries uh, the theft rate does not seem to be going down again in Birmingham I noticed some special problems that they had this is a library which was designed very much on the open access principle 10 or 15 years ago uh, it's used very extensively by school children for project work after school and so on and so forth is there any real chance of reducing losses in badly designed premises of this kind is there any way in which one can vet users and keep out of the special collection areas uh, those who might do damage to them. I've mentioned school children, I'm not thinking that school children are the culprits in this case by any means. And I think the, the most serious problem is not perhaps the users of the libraries, but the, the dishonest members of staff that one finds at time. Some of the nastier losses that I heard about in Birmingham uh, 30 or 40 Piranesi plates disappearing, a wink and a word that could no longer be found, things of this sort. These seem to point, obviously, to an inside job. And uh, the problems in this way for library administrators are extremely serious, and I see no answer to them at all. Um, library education, what changes it? Well, of course, one has here at Columbia a very fine program. Uh, John Feather, who I've mentioned at Loughborough, runs what I think is a very good type program, which is certainly the, the best in Britain and seems to me to be meeting the needs of those who are going to work in rare book libraries in the British Isles fairly effectively. Elsewhere, other parts of the world it's a different matter naturally um, and one can only hope that the influence of institutions like this the, the writings of people like John Feather will produce a change in those who are concerned with curriculum design a recognition that in let's say Jamaica the local library school should pay attention to this matter just as it should be paying attention to other aspects of general library service. One last final point, if I may, before I turn to talk about some specific instances from New Zealand. 
When I went home on leave, I had in my wallet what I thought was a lifetime ticket to the Bodleian Library. You'll all have seen them, I'm sure. Splendid things, which bear on them the, the proud oath that you've sworn that you undertake not to remove from the library or mark to face or injure any volume, nor to bring into the library or kindle therein any fire or flame, and so forth. The same sort of thing that they've been swearing since the early uh, 17th century. Alas, I found the rules had changed. My lifetime ticket was no longer a lifetime ticket. Only those who are full members of the university now have automatic rights of entry into the Bodleian. Others have to pay. In Oxford, the same pattern has come as it's come in so many research libraries. There's been the need to make users pay for the services they're going to receive. I felt a little regretful about the passing of this nice historic uh, right that one had. The new admission ticket to the Bodleian is much less attractive. It's got a mug shot. It uh, gives the dates between which you're allowed to go in. No mention of what the ticket is for or what institution it's for as a security measure. And the same thing applies with uh, British Library Reference Division tickets, in fact. Um, they're very odd things indeed, but uh, obviously their advisors on security told them not to put the name of the institution on them. Payment for use, then. Increasingly important, obviously, in many research libraries. There can be quite serious problems at times for scholars who are not attached to a particular academic institution. In Britain, certainly, with academic unemployment as it is, there can be very serious problems for those without any current affiliation and who find themselves uh, deprived for monetary reasons from access to a number of collections. No doubt one could go to the Bodleian and spin a hard luck story about being on social security and so forth, and I dare say they'd swallow it, but it does present real problems, and even more serious, I think, are the, the problems which come, for example, with accessing the 18th century short title catalogue uh, database. Uh, one can do it, yes, it will probably only cost you 50 or 60 dollars for a reasonable search. How many individuals can continue to pay this out of their own pockets. Very few, I suspect, and the, there are then going to be real difficulties for the retired, the unemployed, and so forth. Now, perhaps I could turn very briefly to speak about the Turnbull Library in New Zealand and some of the problems that it has. Some of them certainly will bear out the things I've been saying in general terms. Others probably will be a contradiction, and these will become, perhaps, from local New Zealand peculiarities, the remoteness of the country, and so on. And certainly, remoteness is one of the most serious uh, problems there is. What ought to be the collecting areas for a research library, which is 
14,000 miles from the uh, source of the history of most of its peoples down to the middle of the 19th century. Obviously, New Zealand itself, the Pacific area perhaps, Captain Cook certainly, but where does one go beyond this? There are two other areas in which the, the Turnbull has built up fine collections uh, through historical accident because Alexander Turnbull himself, the man who bequeathed the, the library to the nation, was in the late 19th century, early 20th century, a collector of Milton and a collector of modern fine printing. So there were quite respectable collections of Kelmscott and Dove's Press and so forth. And he'd been buying uh, fairly prolifically from Quaritch at a time one could buy, when one could buy Milton fairly cheaply. And Turnbull was a man who managed to run through three fortunes, uh, so he uh, managed to build up quite a decent private library. But was it appropriate that the li a library in New Zealand should continue with these subjects? Second, problem of competition with the other libraries which had research with Raffoff, Whalers, and so forth. Um, there were two other fine libraries, the Hocken Library in Dunedin and the Gray Collection in Auckland Public Library, which were themselves good in areas of New Zealand history, Pacific history, Captain Cook, although not on the other two subjects. There's a problem there. There's also, because the country is right at the end of the line, a real problem in securing use of the collections if they build them up to any significant extent. You know, how many serious users of collections of modern fine printing can you expect to find in New Zealand, a country of three million people? How many really serious users of a Milton collection? Obviously, there will be a significant number concerned with the other subjects, but will there be with these? <coughs> these are, I suppose, general problems in a way, the sort of things which will come in any place, um, working out the relationships with neighboring libraries, potentially competing libraries, working out your subject specialization. But there are other problems which I think will be less common in the United States, which we have down there. The lack of institutions, other institutions in Wellington, which give competent reference service uh, on New Zealand materials. This means that there is a load of unsuitable users, school children with projects, granny hunters uh, doing genealogical work and so forth, who necessarily descend on the Turnbull Library for lack of any other place. How does one keep them out, or should one keep them out? How desirable is it to institute a procedure of rationing readers' tickets or charging for use of the collections? We have down there, alas, serious housekeeping problems. The Turnbull Library is one part of the National Library of New Zealand. The National Library of New Zealand is at the moment in, I think it's 28 different buildings around Wellington, none of them designed as a library. Uh, and this in a country 
which is subject to earthquake, a city which is built largely of wood, and in which many of these libraries are, in fact, within a few hundred yards of the fault line. Uh, you know, the future for these research collections in the present accommodation is not very rosy. And there's had to be, simply for lack of space in the main building, uh, quite substantial outhousing, the whole photographic archive, uh, a good proportion of the stack, the conservation department and so forth are all in buildings away from the, the main collections of the Turnbull Library. There are down there staffing problems. In a country with three million people, there are not too many librarians, as you'd imagine. How can one provide a realistic career structure for people to work with rare books when there are the Turnbull, the Hocken, the Grey collection? And perhaps small, one or two smaller collections in a couple of the university libraries. Can it be done either for the professional staff or the technical staff? Or what can be done about it? And finally, I suppose I should mention here is the difficulty, funding of research activities, uh, the seeking of endowments to provide services, and so forth. Now, I, as an outsider, have been rather impressed with the way in which these things have been approached. Um, what I've done is bring along a few bits and pieces that I was able to get from the, the Turnbull Library. These are my own copies of its magazine, the Turnbull Library Records, so I'd be obliged if you don't take those. But, uh, any of the other pieces which are of interest to you, uh, which you look at later, you're very welcome to keep. First, um, as regards specialization and competition. Being a small profession, one can do things on the old boy network fairly effectively, and agreements with the librarians of the other institutions on what will be bought or what will be sought through bequest or otherwise uh, has been worked out fairly easily, fairly readily, fairly amicably too. Of course, at times there will be uh, an element of competition, but in such cases, uh, waiting your turn, you know, if I let you go for this particular item, then it's my turn. Uh, next time there's a similar competition. Seemed to work fairly well. And the fact that the, the libraries are um, four or five hundred miles apart obviously has some, produces some justification for duplication of the, the less expensive support materials. For use of the collections, there have been, I think, some useful, good developments. Uh, there are Cook Fellowships, which will be awarded to scholars from overseas who wish to come to use the collections. There's been extensive publication of catalogues of parts of the collections. For example, last year, the year before, rather, Oxford University Press published a bibliographical catalogue of the Milton collection um, on behalf of the library. And it's a, a rather good piece of work in many ways, I think. Um, the library also 
doing rather the same thing that the Bodleian Library has attempted at times in the part, acts as a centre for publication work of one kind or another. The National Register of Archives, which is done, produced jointly with the New Zealand National Archives, had its editorial office in the Turnbull. Uh, you'll see here a number of leaflets for the Archive of New Zealand Music and so on for other things for which they are willing to act as centre. Uh, and, of course, there is their journal, the Turnbull Library Record. In other words, fairly valiant attempts to draw attention of the potential users to specific new acquisitions and also an attempt by providing accommodation to any group which has a wish for a meeting hall which is remotely connected with books or New Zealand history so that uh, to act as a venue for bookish activities brings in a lot of people who will acquire more respect for the library perhaps and certainly realize from its many exhibitions and so on some of the advantages. As far as the, the problems of building, staffing and um, housekeeping are concerned, well they've had to live, they have to live with the, the problems until the new National Library building which is at present underway is completed but through one or two minor accidents, floods, and so forth, they have been able to secure maximum publicity for the potential loss to the New Zealand cultural heritage if there is a major disaster, and uh, I think enlist a lot of public support which would not have been there otherwise. And disaster preparedness policies for dealing with earthquake or fire or flood obviously form an extremely important part of their work. The staffing, uh, there are some quite interesting problems. An attempt to integrate rare book library work with work in archives and records to an extent that is certainly unusual in Britain. Uh, as I was saying, it's difficult to create a career structure with just these three libraries. But if you add to them the national archives and some of the provincial archives and recognize the extent to which the manuscript librarians and the archivists are going to be working in the same way with similar materials, then a more sensible career structure is possible. The role of the conservation officer uh, is obviously very important. There are, I think, some severe difficulties, partly because the man they have is so very good. Uh, they find that he's being drawn on more and more by other branches of the National Library or other government departments for general conservation advice when there's a flood here or uh, there seem to be problems there and so on. And this does, I think, cause a number of problems because the more junior staff uh, lack the know-how and initiative to undertake certain activities properly. And, you know, if the conservation officer happens to be away at the north of North Island dealing with a particular problem and you can't get any photographs of particular books made until he's said so, uh, it is a little irritating. Um, 
but one can respect it, and the conservation officer's word is in fact law in this sort of way. If he says no to photographs, well, yes, the Prime Minister of New Zealand might get the photographs, but I certainly wouldn't. A funding uh, following, I think, very much the sort of pattern that one has in the United States in many ways. Past endowments come through the, the Turnbull Endowment itself, which is supported by three private trusts, and also, to a considerable extent, by the state lottery. Uh, to be the, the Golden Kiwi Research Fellow sounds a bit off, <laughs> but you still get the money. <laughs> um, some income from publications, and this is something they've done, I think, rather nicely. Um, been a number of spectacularly successful printings of uh, reproductions of watercolours, prints and so on, made by the early settlers in New Zealand, which are bought extensively in New Zealand and also, of course, used extensively as Christmas presents to send to uncles in England and so forth. This has been a money spinner for the library, and in some ways the, the library has been able to develop other things so there have been joint publications with the New Zealand Wool Board, for example, with uh, reproductions of 1860s uh, drawings of the interior of uh, a sheep-shearing shed and so on and so forth. Um, even in this way, a certain amount of support given to current New Zealand fine printers. Uh, I know of one instance, at any rate, where a book was underwritten by the library um, as far as the purchase of the paper, the purchase of the types was concerned. Admittedly, it was a book about Captain Cook written by uh, New Zealand's foremost historian. But nevertheless, uh, here there was an instance of the library fostering the production of a type of material which it was also concerned in collecting in a different field. And finally, of course, there are the gifts and donations which come very largely from Friends of the Turnbull Library, a body which has been organized on the traditional base. Now, I've spoken for quite a long time on something which is of very little interest, I imagine, to most of my audience as far as the, the New Zealand Library is concerned. Um, my reason for doing this has been to illustrate simply that the, the sort of problems that one has in research libraries are likely to be the same wherever we are in the world in many ways. And the methods of solving them, or the methods of tackling some of the problems which work in one place also seem to me to work in another. The Turnbull Library is a library you should visit when you go to New Zealand. I think it's a super place to work, and I don't get any money from them for saying so. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>